welcome to today's episode of Arnold Golden Gregory's newest podcast series. I wish that I knew what I know now. It's kind of a musical nod to the faces. Uh, conversations with FDA on FDA issues. Each month, we will release a new podcast where different members of our food and drug practice and colleagues and other life science teams will discuss issues and challenges that uh, they have encountered and what we've seen when assisting clients on business and legal issues. Recently, my partner, Mike Burke, and I did a podcast on quality agreements. Hello, I'm Alan Minsk, and welcome to today's episode of Arnold Golden Gregory's newest podcast series. I wish that I knew what I know now. It's kind of a musical nod to the faces. Uh, Conversations with FDA on FDA issues. Each month, we will release a new podcast where different members of our food and drug practice and colleagues and other life science teams will discuss issues and challenges that uh, they have encountered and what we've seen when assisting clients on business and legal issues. Recently, my partner, Mike Burke, and I did a podcast on quality agreements. As I mentioned, I am Alan Minsk, a partner and leader of our firm's food and drug practice team, and I am joined by my esteemed colleague, Brian Terrace, who is a partner in our firm's corporate practice. Uh, For today's episode, Brian and I will be discussing key due diligence issues to consider when acquiring or investing in life science companies or products. So what we'll do is uh, back and forth, and uh, Brian, I will uh, throw you a question. What factors determine the scope of the buyer or investor's FDA due diligence review? Yeah, thanks, Alan. Glad to be here. So the two primary uh, things that the investor or acquirer are looking at for all diligence purposes, but uh, FDA diligence especially, are two things. One is showstoppers, so major red flags, something that will you know terminate the deal. It's such a major issue it cannot be solved. But the other one and, and the more common um, th- things you encounter are just making sure that the strategic rationale for the deal is still sound. Um, and that, you know, as you review all of the FDA materials, um, you want to make sure the assumptions you have regarding the, the company you're buying or investing in are still are still sound. The products that, that they say ha- have in development are as promising as you hope, or the products they have in the market are selling as well as you hope with no regulatory issues and things like that. Um, probably the, the biggest item that, that affects the scope is what type of deal you're doing, an asset deal or a stock deal. Um, in, in an asset deal, you're buying assets. Um, you can pick and choose which liabilities come along with those asset, assets usually, um, which, which means that your diligence review may be somewhat less extensive because you're not as concerned about any, any particular liability that you, you know, if you have a concern about a regulatory issue or, or you don't want to spend the money to really research it, you just leave that one behind if you don't think it's a material part of the company. Um, versus a stock deal, of course, where you're buying all the equity um, and all the liabilities and everything comes with it and you don't have that pick and choose option. And in that case, your diligence might be much more extensive. Um, a couple other things that affect the scope size of the company, status of the company, a early stage pre-revenue, pre-commercialization company. You, you don't have uh, nearly as much sources to do, obviously, because they, they haven't gotten very far yet versus a mature company with several products um, on the market. There's a whole lot of information you need to look at. Finally, the, la- the last thing I tend to focus on, of course, would be the familiarity of the target. Um, if the acquirer is in the same business, if this is a rival company, this is a, perhaps a partner of the company, uh, the acquirer is, is looking to acquire a vendor or supplier. Um, if they are familiar with the company and know the management team, 
the need to do extensive diligence, FDA diligence, is somewhat less because they hopefully already have a lot of comfort with the company that they are investing or buying. Um, Alan, what documents should a buyer request or an investor? What are the types of documents that we're looking at? Sure. Well, often companies will have a, a due diligence list, and Brian, you would have it on your corporate end. There may be some tax things. There could be some other non-FDA issues. And also, there may be healthcare compliance issues, particularly if the product is you know, already approved, issues about any kickback, false claims act. But um, in my little FDA world, uh, where I lead uh, five other lawyers, here's some of the things that I would focus on, and I guess I would put it in different buckets, because the issues will frequently focus on the company's kind of manufacturing compliance issues, you know, quality control issues, um, also sort of its marketing, promotional materials, um, and uh, I guess last would be even as simple as what is the regulatory status of the product, uh, particularly let's say it's an ex-U.S. company and they sell it. You know, they may think that the product is, is uh, approved or licensed one way, and yet in the United States it may be uh, regulated differently, either OTC and prescription, or it's maybe a device in Europe, it'll be a drug in, in the United States. So some of the documents that I would you know, want to look at would be, for example, un- untitled letters, uh, warning letters, subpoenas and any other enforcement you know, type of information that maybe they've received from FDA. Again, and separately might be the Office Inspector General, or Department of Justice, or a state regulatory body. You know, are there any threatened seizures or import alerts or automatic detentions or civil penalties? Those kinds of things, again, getting back to um, sort of more manufacturing-related issues. Have there been any recalls or market withdrawals, and if so, why? Um, if the company was doing, let's say, a line extension or the product wasn't even approved yet, you know, I'd want to know some information about the clinical studies. Also, back to manufacturing or quality-related issues might be, have the, has the company done any internal audits or have any external third-party audits? And I might want to see that for maybe three years, five years. Um, has FDA even questioned the regulatory status of the product? Um, has the company had any meetings with FDA about that? Has there been any post-market issues, not just recalls along those lines, but adverse events or medical device reports, you know, dear doctor letters? When was the last time the company um, was inspected? Um, had that go? You know, those would be, you know, some of the issues. Did the company seek licensure or approval or clearance for some new indications and FDA said no? You know, has there been any other whistleblower issues? And then sort of in general, bottom line, Compliance? Are they? Do they believe that there's substantial compliance with FDA requirements? If so, you know why or why not? And then kind of the catch-all: Is there anything else we should know that you haven't told us about FDA compliance? So again, the three issues primarily all relating to manufacturing quality control issues, regulatory status of the product, and then I would say marketing, labeling, promotional issues, because that's really kind of all the focus of, you know, are you buying a lemon? Um, and can you turn into lemonade, or are you buying a pig, and can you put lipstick on it, those kinds of things. So those would be high, high level, but again, most companies, certainly we have checklists. I would suspect that most companies would have, or one would have, a checklist um, and due diligence like, you know, Brian, you would have done on the corporate end. So let me throw it back to you. What, are, what would be, I guess, the typical process that a buyer or an investor would undertake to review and analyze, you know, the applicable diligence materials? The life sciences transactions are, are somewhat different um, from, a, from a corporate perspective. When, um, when you are buying or investing in a life sciences company, it's a heavily, of course, a heavily regulated industry, both FDA regulation uh, and general healthcare uh, compliance regulation. Uh, because of that, the process tends to be 
somewhat more regimented and specific. So, you know, typically it would start with a, a comprehensive due diligence list, as Alan mentioned, um, requesting many of the, or all of the documents and, and information that, that Alan just spoke about. And, and that would be prepared by the acquirer or the investor and along with um, their counsel. And the acquirer or buyer usually um, will form a, a deal, what's called a deal team um, in which the deal team would consist of generally the, the lead corporate lawyers who are the you know handling the general corporate aspects of the transaction, but with a you know on the FDA side specifically bring in FDA regulatory lawyers. Um, for instance, Allen's team, of course, um, if I'm leading a transaction involving the acquisition of a a life sciences company, we bring in Allen, and Allen Allen's team becomes part of the the overall deal team. The due diligence request list serves as a basis of how to trade documents and information back and forth. Typically, you would set up an uh, electronic data room, typically how it's done now. Um, electronic data rooms are very, very common these days. They're handy. Uh, all the documents are in one place. There is a specific record of what has been, what documents have been provided. Uh, most electronic data rooms can keep track of what documents have been reviewed and reviewed by who. So that's a good way to exchange, exchange documents um, and keep everything in a clear um, an easy uh, procedure. The most important thing I would mention here is from, from a buyer's side, the process needs to be designed such that you are minimizing disruption to the ongoing business. So someone who's selling the business or, or taking in a significant investment in the business, uh, the executives of that company still need to run their company on a daily basis. Um, and it is very, very, very time consuming, of course, to respond to many, many questions and document requests. All that, of course, is needed. The buyer needs to do their diligence. But at the same time, you know, we found over the years, the more the buyer has their, has their plan together, uh, the better. Sometimes happens is you'll get the same questions being asked to the same people at the, at the sellers in seller's management over and over and over again because they didn't, you know, someone on the deal team, the buyer's deal team, hadn't, didn't realize the question had already been provided. So, um, you know, when we're representing buyers, we really encourage them to get everything together beforehand and to process uh, regimented and, and fairly um, organized to minimize that disruption. It's going to make everyone happy. It's going to allow the seller to continue running their business, which everybody, of course, wants <laughs> before the deal can close. You don't want the business to, to suffer. So lastly, I'll just say, you know, the more regimented and organized you can make the process, the more it helps after the deal. Um, with post-closing integration issues in terms of if the process of diligence was, was run well, there's a good record, then once the deal closes, you then have a, a set of issues and in an organized manner, um, you have good communication with management in order to bring, you know, once the deal closes to, to get everything together and create the one company that you hope to get. Um, Alan, what are, let me throw it back to you, what are some common issues that come up during due diligence from an FDA perspective? So Brian, before I answer that, if I can ask a follow-up question uh, to your last one. You know, does it yeah. matter or do you find in practice, and now this is the non-corporate guy speaking, but do you find in practice that process may vary if it's a ex-U.S. company, say, involved in the transaction or if it's a smaller company? It, it, I don't think it should matter, but do you find in practice there's any differences in size of the company or the location of the company or maybe they're really not traditionally a life science company, but they're getting into that space. So do you see any variations of that, I guess, is, is my long-winded question. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, there's, there's all, all kinds of variations. I mean, the way I just went through it is the standard way to do it, but, but certainly there is, um, you know, the process can, can certainly differ. I mean, 
couple of examples. I mean, you, sometimes when you have a foreign buyer, they don't they don't know what they need to know. <laughs> so, so if we're representing a foreign company, oftentimes we have to sort of coach them. Um, acquisitions are can sometimes be very different depending on the, the law of the of the foreign jurisdiction where the buyer is from. Um, so a lot of times what they're doing is hiring us to coach them how to do the diligence. In other words, okay, well, well what documents do we do we need to request? What documents do we need to look at? What's important here? How does all of that fit into a United States law style purchase agreement? Um, so you know, I, I would say the big difference when you're dealing with a, a foreign company buyer, especially when it's their first or, or one of their few acquisitions in the U.S., is a lot more handholding on our side. We, we the lawyers at AGG tend to do more more of the diligence, more of the coordinating and organizing that I was talking about versus maybe a you know a more experienced company in the U.S., a larger company. A lot of the organizing and coordinating the diligence will be run by the internal business team rather than the lawyers. Got it. All right. Well, thank you. Um, so to your, your question to me, um, I guess some of the issues that come up, some of the common issues, I guess, that come up, and I'll talk based on, you know, when you and I have worked together and other partners. One is the you know, the change in ownership, some of the logistical questions that come up are maybe ministerial. So you got to change an ownership company or product, you know, or, or applications. There's certain notice to FDA who will handle that notice when it's the timeline. Um, you know, you've got the deal in your group, sort of when does the deal end, but then there's also sort of the notice to FDA um, and maybe even state regulatory bodies about the transfer. So that, that seems to be a common issue. Um, who will handle user fees? Um, I seem to get that a fair amount. Let's say prescription drugs, it could be a lot of money. Um, device user fees are not insignificant, but certainly not as much as the prescription drugs. So there will sometimes be questions about who should pay it, how should we pay it, will you pay me back, should I just pay you, should that be just part of the, the deal itself? And then that's sort of when, Brian, you deal with that, I just tell you the issue, and then you solve it. Um, you know, sometimes there'll be questions about... All right. Sometimes there'll be questions about um, ongoing enforcement actions, whether or not it's a 483 or some audits or, or complaints and things along those lines. And kind of we have to sort of wait and see how that plays out because that may obviously have a bearing on the deal itself. And again, kind of related to that, if, if there were compliance issues, if there was a recall, if there was a 483 that's either ongoing or let's now say that's, that's ended or, or, or close to ending, how is that being resolved? Where is that in the process? Um, and what kind of uh, liability or exposure is the acquiring company going to have? And again, that's something that you know you and uh, you and I talk about about identification and closing it out and collaboration. You mentioned the data room. Often the data rooms will be very very thorough, but in my experience, and is that often it can get confusing. Um, not always. But sometimes people will throw in documents, and it's not necessarily where I is, or my team in the regulatory group would be looking. So I have to sort of find it, and it's hard, and that, of course, takes delay. Or I don't find the document. And so then when we ask you know, the company, well, we need this, they say, oh, we didn't think it was relevant, or that's proprietary, or it's confidential. And it's kind of like, well, it may be confidential, but we kind of need it for our due diligence. And so they just sort of slows up the process. And I guess related to that is, maybe sometimes lack of coordination between maybe the, the BD commercial team and the, you know, our, the regulatory affairs and quality assurance folks, and that lack of coordination often can lead to delays or the proverbial fire drills that we're trying to avoid. So those are some, not all, uh, but some of the issues that I know you and I have encountered and, and 
you know, I with some of the other partners that we have on some other deals have encountered. So those are some high-level issues. Let me ask you, I guess, uh, one other question. I'm going to be mindful of time because we try to keep this in about 30 minutes. So once due diligence is complete, how do the parties address in the purchase agreement the risks of both known and unknown regulatory issues in the business? Right. So, so once you've done all this diligence, um, you, you've identified or dealt with uh, the issues that, that you just spoke about, Alan, or at least some of them, or maybe one of them, um, hopefully not too many. And, and then you've got to take that and apply it to the, the main transaction document, which is the, the purchase agreement, asset purchase agreement or stock purchase agreement, and apply those issues to the agreement and, and how the, the allocation of risk of any one issue or problem that's been uncovered is, is going to be handled. And there's two main parts of the purchase agreement that apply here, um, reps and warranties, representations and warranties, and the indemnification provisions. So reps and warranties are statements of fact about the company that's being acquired, and those statements of fact um, are accompanied by what's called disclosure schedules, which are an integral part of the reps and warranties um, and provide sort of exceptions and lists. Of, of things about the company, for instance, uh, we have no, we have had no uh, FDA correspondence, formal FDA correspondence, other than the following. So then, there's a list on, on that schedule of, of the important FDA correspondence that the company has had. Um, this ties into the diligence because hopefully, once you get a draft of those disclosure schedules from the seller, there are no surprises. You already know about all this. Um, what ends up happening inevitably is there are things that are put on that disclosure schedule that. <laughs> <laughs> that we're not disclosing diligence, or at least that you didn't think we're disclosing diligence, so it leads to more talking. Um, oftentimes, it will lead to more questions. Well, hey, we didn't know about this letter. Tell us about this. What are the circumstances behind that? And so there's more more back and forth as you're drafting purchase agreement and as you're reviewing and commenting on, on the disclosure schedules. Um, specifically with respect to FDA diligence, there's usually two or three full representations and warranties surrounding FDA regulatory compliance. Um, you know, again, depending on the status of the company, whether it has, you know, ongoing marketed products or whether it's pre-commercialization, th those reps can be more extensive or less extensive. But usually there's a full laundry list of statements about the company. The company's been in compliance. It has no, it, no material issues other than the following. Usually those representations will track back a number of years, depending on how long the company's been in existence. Um, it would go, if it's been in existence more than five years, it should be tracked back at least five years. And all of these reps and warranties tie into the indemnification provisions and the seller of the company um, will stand behind those reps and warranties uh, and will indemnify the buyer in case those reps and warranties turn out not to be true or turn out to be inaccurate following closing. So the indemnification provisions are heavily negotiated, specifically with respect to FDA issues. The indemnification provisions are usually very strong and extensive. Other reps and warranties tend to have some limitations on the indemnification that is required if there's a problem after closing. FDA regulatory issues are often not qualified by those limitations. And what we will often see too is what's called specific indemnity. So a specific indemnity would not be tied to a representation and warranty. It would be a, a specific cause for a seller to have to pay damages to the buyer for if, if a certain event occurs. For example, if, if a FDA recall has been uncovered in diligence and the buyer is particularly worried about any possible liability of that recall after closing, the specific indemnity would state that the seller has to indemnify buyer dollar for dollar for any damages or expenses suffered or incurred by buyer after the closing. 
And so that, that's a very specific, I mean, I've had that example in, in several situations, so I'm a very specific example of how the risk is shifted. Um, and depending on the leverage between the two, the buyer will often be able to to get specific indemnities on certain things that occurred prior to closing that, that they don't feel like it, it is fair for them to have to pay for after closing. So finally, Alan, I think I think we should end on this. What, what are some mistakes you see that buyers or investors when trying to do the d- diligence process? Thanks, Brian. So it it really uh, it doesn't matter whether or not it's a pharmaceutical, medical device, uh, food, dietary supplement, uh, cosmetic, and you and I, you know, work on several of these types of agreements. These are things that I often will see is, uh, and sometimes they're kind of head scratching, but but I get it. One is simply not knowing the regulatory history of the product um, and any past problems or FDA communications, particularly when the product is kind of a I don't want to say generational, that's not really the right phrase, but where the product has gone through a few hands. So it may be that the one who actually owns the, the drug application or the device application or, or the dietary supplement or cosmetic, it may be that they've purchased it from somebody else and they just and they didn't really know the history of the product. And so now they're having to sort of answer for somebody else. Um, hopefully they have the file, but they may not necessarily know the nuances of what was discussed with FDA or some of the past issues. And you'll see that, you know, with a product that's maybe 10 or 20 years old, it's gone through probably two or three different hands. And so I think that's one issue. Also, I guess not really uh, including the right people early on. I I noted this in the quality agreement uh, podcast that Mike Burke and I did, but you know, often these things will go pretty quickly. These these deals are going quickly, and they're you know understandably driven by the business development or commercial folks that Brian you know you will be dealing with. But they the the interactions with the QA quality assurance or regulatory affairs people may have been only simply putting certain documents in the data room, but they're really not brought in later um, or extensively on the due diligence or they may actually have certain documents in their room or in their office on their computer that maybe BD folks didn't know about. And again, this gets back to sort of the lack of communication or lack of coordination, I guess is a better phrase, and how that can lead, you know, to uh, delays. And also just not sometimes understanding how FDA works or, or how the product is regulated. Again, I mentioned that earlier about, you know, maybe the product is regulated in Europe one way, but it's regulated in the States another way. Um, and just those kinds of nuances. I guess the bottom line is almost the familiarity with the product and with FDA rules. I mean, it almost sounds kind of simple, but it sometimes will be common mistakes that folks will make. So again, we could talk for hours about this, but that's not the purpose of a podcast. So I'm going to you know, end it here, but I do hope that you found the discussion informative. If you have any questions or would like to submit any feedback or topic suggestions, for future podcasts, uh, please feel free to reach out to me in particular, I guess for topics, that would be alan, A-L-A-N dot Minsk, M-I-N-S-K, at A-G-G, as in Arnold Golden Gregory. If you have any questions, though, about Brian or I discussed, you can certainly email one of us or both of us. You've got my email. Brian would be B-R-I-A-N dot T-E-R-A-S at A-G-G dot com. Um, Our contact information is also in our bios at our website, uh, www.hg.com. 
future podcast episodes will be distributed through our monthly FDA newsletter. So if you're not on that newsletter, uh, you can reach out to me, Alan, and I will make sure you're on that, as well as our website, again, hg.com, and social media pages. So, Brian, I enjoyed it. Thanks for the information. Thank all of you for listening, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Alan. 